try to do an argument like this. What do you mean when you say God? A Hindu, a Muslim, uh, a Buddhist, and, and a Christian may have very different conceptions of who God is. So firstly, what does it mean to be real? Well, what I mean when I'm using the word this evening is that it's something, something is real, like a statement, is real if it's true for everyone at all times and all places. For example, if I say it is really true that Jesus rose from the grave, what I'm saying is it's not just a matter of feeling or opinion. Um, even if I didn't exist, Jesus still rose from the grave. Doesn't matter where you are or who you are or what time and place you have. What I'm trying to say when I say Jesus rose from the grave is that it's true for everyone at all times, all places. So to be real is to have an existence outside my mind. For example, think of the story of the Wizard of Oz. If you read the story, you can imagine everything in the story by yourself. As you're reading the book, you can have, use your imagination to construct, as it were, a world. But it'll be a mental world within your mind only. Just because you can imagine it doesn't mean there's something outside your mind that corresponds to the Wizard of Oz. So it's fictional. It's not completely unreal because it's something you're able to imagine. But it's not real in the way we're talking about today. So if I said there's a blue car in the parking lot, well, what I'm saying is there's a car over there whether I can see it or not. Even when I'm not looking, if I'm looking the other way, this podium is still here. It's not something that's a part of just my mind. It's independent of my mind. That's what we mean. So, it's not, so when we say real, what we're saying is it's not a matter of opinion or a matter of emotion. Oftentimes, the word real, real is used to talk about our feelings. Sure, our feelings are real, but the way I feel about something may not be the way someone else feels about that very thing. So feelings are real, but they belong to pe persons. They belong, it's an emotional, uh, a feeling is some sort of an emotion that resides inside a person. So we're not talking about those kinds of things this evening. So we don't want to, for example, say, well, I know God's real because I feel this way. That is not what we're talking about. In short, we're talking about objective reality, not subjective reality. A feeling would be a subjective reality. So now, what do we mean by knowledge, very quickly? Well, we're looking for certainty, not just maybe, or something that's probable or possible. We're looking for something that we think is simply the case, that we can have certainty about. Um, we don't have to turn there, but in the, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, we find that Luke is writing the account of his, his Gospel account to a person by the name of Theophilus. And he says in, in the opening verses that the reason he's doing it, he addresses Theophilus and he says, the reason I'm writing this to you is so that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have believed. Which means it's possible to believe something, but still not have certainty. So Theophilus had believed the gospel, but he did not know the details, the historical details surrounding 
uh, the gospel story and the teachings of Jesus. So Luke is trying to give a believer certainty. So going beyond saying, okay, I think I've, I believe this, but now I am certain. So that's what we mean when we say knowledge. Knowledge comes to us in different ways. Some of these ways can apply to the question that we're asking, how can I know God is real? Some other ways which we, which we use to determine knowledge cannot apply to God, and that's really important to understand. And knowledge is not always rational. And we will talk about ways of knowing which are not rational in just a moment. So first, there's self-evident knowledge. Like, for example, knowledge that I exist. I don't have to figure out whether I exist. I don't have to see myself to know that I exist. Knowing that I exist is something that children stop struggling with or they don't even struggle with it actually they just come to the realization that they are they exist it's self-evident no one has to explain it demonstrate it prove it you don't have to do an experiment for it it's just something we know already some other truths is for example I know that there is a world that is to say that there's something that's there that's not me so I exist but then there's other things that exist now babies don't know this which is why when they f they're busy waving their hands and their legs when they're a couple of months old, they, they somehow manage to grab their foot, and what do they do? Put it in their mouth. They have no idea that they are basically biting themselves. They think what they've grabbed is something else. They're not able to make that distinction. But at a certain point, they grow and they're able to make the distinction that there's a world out there. And so, this is not something that needs to be demonstrated. Everyone, it's just obvious to everybody. And also, morality. No matter where you go in the world, no matter what kind of, uh, what ethnic group you encounter or what religious persuasion they have, people know that there is good and there's evil. Now, oftentimes, given the way human beings are, when we do evil, we try to either hide it or minimize it. So it may not be obvious to us because we can repress our conscience and especially if you do the same evil thing over and over again, it just becomes almost like a habit and then we forget about it. But if someone does evil to us, we're outraged. We steal and we kind of minimize the fact. But if somebody steals from us and, when, and we find out that that happened, we experience moral outrage. So no matter where you go in the world, you can't not know that there's good and evil. Everyone does. So the question here is, we know there's some things that we know just simply because they're obvious. Is the knowledge of God the same way? Is, God, is, is the knowledge that God exists also just self-evident? The answer is no, it's not self-evident. It is possible for the human mind to seriously doubt whether there is God. That is a possibility. It's not self-evident like, I know that I exist, because a self-evident truth cannot be denied. For example, if I, supposing I decide I'm gonna deny that I exist, and I stand up and say, I don't exist, what's the, what's the problem with that? Well, who's doing the speaking, right? You have to 
use your vocal cords to say it. And as you're saying it, you know, you'll know that it's not the case. So when we say something is self-evident, it means that it's impossible to deny. It's just that obvious. So now we also have empirical knowledge or simply put observational knowledge. This is knowledge that comes to us through the five senses. For example, babies can tell if it's hot or if it's cold. Um, they can tell someone's touching them. And it's not rational. You don't have to know math or logic to figure it out. It's just immediate. As soon as uh, the light shines in your face and your eyes pick up the light, your senses are telling you that there's light. This is not rational. You don't sit and think it through. You just know it as the information comes through, it to you, through your senses. So it depends on our five senses and we can determine that things exist without knowing what they are. So there's two kinds of determination that our minds can make. One is that something exists. The other is what kind of thing it is. For example, um, in Alice in Wonderland, we, we have the, um, I believe it's the rabbit, right? There's a rabbit in the story. Well, no one thinks that that rabbit exists in the real world. But we know what kind of thing the rabbit is. So you can know what kind of being you're talking about and still know that that being doesn't exist. It's only fictional. Now you can go the other way around as well. At night, if you're in your house and you hear a noise and you know you have bushes around the house and you hear the rustling of leaves, you know that there's something out there. So you can know that definitely something exists that's causing that sound. But you don't know what it is. You don't know whether it's a rabbit, whether it's a person, whether it's uh, the neighbor's dog, or just the wind. You don't know, but you know that something caused the noise. So it's possible to know that something exists without knowing what kind of being it is. And it's also possible to know separately what kind of being it is. What is the nature of that thing? And in fiction, you can have, you can think about kinds of things and still know that they don't exist. Like David Copperfield or Oliver Twist or, or any story that you read. You can imagine kinds of beings and know that they have no independent existence outside your mind. So, here's the question. We're going through this because ultimately we're driving at our question. Can you know God through the five senses? Is that how you determine that God is real? The answer is no, because God, as understood by Christians in the Judeo-Christian view, is invisible. And God has no size or shape so he's not made of a physical body. Jesus said in John 4:24, Jesus said, God is a spirit. And if he had a physical body, he could only be in one place at a time. It is precisely because he has no body that he can be everywhere at the same time. So the senses are not going to help us. Now that doesn't mean that God by himself cannot speak to us if he wanted to in a loud voice like he did at Mount Sinai. Of course, God can do that. But if God doesn't do anything like that, 
God remains invisible. Now, if God were to give us information separately, have it written down in a book, that would be great. In fact, he's done that. That's called the Bible. But without the Bible, without God taking the initiative to communicate, the senses are not going to tell us directly that there is God. Because the senses are going to only pick up physical objects. And if God is not physical, your sight, taste, hearing is not going to help to, to determine whether God is there because God is not a physical being. Which is why in, in, in the Ten Commandments, God says in the Second Commandment, don't make any carved image of anything in heaven above or in the earth or under the earth because no, nothing you create can represent him. So obviously this is good to know that we learn through our five senses, but it's not going to help us. Then you have rational knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge we use to do something like mathematics. It makes use of the laws of logic. So if anyone has done arithmetic, you figure a problem out by using certain principles like addition, subtraction, you learn how that works and then you learn to apply it and you figure out a math problem, for example, or a word problem, or a puzzle, or you're solving, for example, a, a, um, a crime to figure out who committed the crime. So you're applying principles of logic and thinking and trying to derive and reach a conclusion. So you start with what's, what's called uh, premises, which are things you believe to be true, and then from premises you move to conclusions. So even those of us who are not used to these terms, premise and conclusion, we still use it. We still use logic. Everybody uses logic while driving, for example, whether it's a, even as something as simple as getting dressed. We know there's a certain sequence, a certain order. Things, certain things depend on other things. Um, so it makes use of logic. Now, rational knowledge may make use of logic, but also make use of the five senses because for example, you can see a burnt out building and you know that what was there? A fire. So you start with a visual evidence. It comes to you through your senses. But the, you know that the only way that could be is if there was a fire. So now you know that there was a fire. Even though you, you can't see the fire. The fire is long gone. But you know there was a fire. Because you're deducing that. So those sorts of things where one has to figure something out is called rational knowledge. So the question is now, can you have rational knowledge of God? So it can be inductive or deductive. I won't get into that. I'll just move on. And rational knowledge is also known as argumentation. And what we have to do is distinguish this from simply having an argument with somebody. That's not what we're talking about. It's not like a heated emotional disagreement. Argumentation means figuring something out, like a lawyer in a court laying out a case to argue the guilt or innocence of a person, for example. So this sort of rational knowledge distinguishes humans from animals. Last time we checked, animals don't do logic or math or solve crimes. You know, a dog can use its nose, which is actually the second kind, the empirical knowledge, it's using, it can use its smell to track, some, track something, but it doesn't sit and figure out a math problem. And then finally, there's knowledge based on authority. 
So in this case, you start with a trusted authority and whatever the authority gives you, you have to have a reason why you trust this authority. For example, the character of the person. And then you accept whatever the authority says. You accept their testimony. Okay, now this is used all the time by children. Children don't figure things out when they are young. They just receive knowledge from their parents, from teachers, from, and we ourselves, we yield to government authorities, uh, our teachers or professors, specialists like doctors. We don't sit and try to figure out if what the doctor is saying is true. We try to figure out whether the doctor is trustworthy. Is this a real, really a doctor? Do they have experience? Have they, have they helped people before? Uh, have they been trained well? So we certify them as a trusted authority and then we listen to them. And then we receive knowledge from them. They tell us what to do. So for Christians, the scripture is a trusted authority. But what if you're a non-Christian and you have not come to trust the Bible yet? Is there, can you just believe there's a God because someone else said so? The answer is no, that's not going to be sufficient. So by God, what do we mean? Well, there are many views. According to atheism, there's no God at all. But this also presupposes that the person who says there's no God at all has some idea of what it is that they're saying there isn't. So if you meet somebody who's an ardent atheist, you can always ask them, can you please tell me what it is that you're saying doesn't exist? Describe it to me before you tell me it doesn't exist. That's a valid question to ask. And the other way around can happen too and often frequently happens. People come to us and say, you talk about God, what do you mean? That's valid. We ought to be able to define what we mean when we say God. Then there's pantheism. Pantheism holds that the world is God and God is the world. So the example, the classic example of this in uh, modern days in the West is the Star Wars trilogy. Everyone's familiar with Star Wars. And it's the idea of the force. So there's this force and the force is the closest thing in Star Wars to a divine principle. Turns out that the force is not a person. And the force is neither good nor bad, it's kind of both. So the force has a light side and a dark side. So all the good that a, a Jedi Knight can do, there can, there's a corresponding dark side to the force that a Sith Lord of Darkness, who's like an evil Jedi, can do. But the evil Jedi and the good Jedi both obtain their power from the same force. And that force is the closest thing you get to God. So God is both the source of good and of evil at the same time. And God is not really a person. God is more like this energy or force that's just everywhere, in everything. And so in some of the earlier, I think in the prequels in the, to, the, to the original trilogy of the Star Wars, there's a discussion about the force and they talk about the force being in all of us. So it's kind of like New Age. And New Age is nothing but a Western version of Hinduism. So when we say God, we're not talking about this. 
We're not talking about atheism, because an atheist is unable, oftentimes, unable to define God. We're not talking about pantheism. We're not talking about this personal God from, from this impersonal God from whom both good and evil emanate. Now, then there's deism. In deism, you have a personal God. So there is a person who created the world, but he sort of created the world and sort of wound it up like a clock or like a wind-up toy. It's, so it's mechanical, and then he just lets it go and doesn't bother coming and visiting the world. He doesn't do miracles. He doesn't intervene in the world. So there, this is, there are people who, who in history have believed that, yeah, I believe in a God, but I don't believe that God is interested in us talking to him, praying to him, nor is he going to come visit us or do miracles or anything like that. But when, I, when we see the design in the world, the beauty in the world, we figure, yeah, there must be a God, but that God, God is far away. And then finally, we have the view that we are trying to defend today, which is called theism. So I would like everyone here to repeat the phrase after me, the theistic God. Right. That is the God that we are trying to define. And the theistic God is a personal God who is the creator of the world, but also intervenes in the world, comes into the world, responds to prayer, does miracles to show that he's, he's there, that he's active, those sorts of things. And the world depends upon him, but he doesn't depend on the world. So according to the theistic uh, view, God is personal. He exists prior to the universe. He's not the same thing as the universe. He's not nature. Nature didn't always exist, but God existed. So God is not nature. He creates and sustains the universe. So he created the universe, but he also holds the universe up. And if he stopped sustaining it, the universe would just go out of existence. That's what we mean when we say the theistic view of God. And he intervenes in human affairs by revealing himself, by speaking, by doing miracles, uh, by even entering the world, taking on some form to come into the world. What is the Christian view of God, the Judeo-Christian view of God? There's only one God, not many. God is a person. God has no size or shape. He has no body or body parts. He does not change because he's not in time. God is not in time. He's eternal. So he's not a changing being. He cannot change. So that's, the, that's who we mean. So we owe it to the person that we're speaking with if we're doing evangelism and this issue of, you know, show me that God is real comes up. Let's define what we mean. God, by God, I don't mean a flying spaghetti monster, which is what Richard Dawkins unfortunately thinks you know, is the kind of being that religious people hold to. You know, some sort of created, uh, you know, a scary monster that's invented and used to put children to bed at night. You know, we, we don't mean a physical being like that, whether it's made of spaghetti or something else. This is what we mean. So there are some verses here, but I'm going to skip over these verses because if you pick up a good 
uh, introduction to theology, I'm sure you'll find these verses arranged. But these are just verses to show that what I've said about the Judeo-Christian God is backed up with what the Bible says. God is a person. God has no body. So because Jesus said God is a spirit. He does not change. We see that in Malachi. I am the Lord. I do not change. And God is not in time. He is the I am. He is always the I am, not the I was or the I will be. His name is I am. And the, in Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, From everlasting to everlasting, you're God. So now we know what we want. Now we've defined our terms properly. What we want is rational knowledge. So knowledge that we can reach by figuring out. Okay, not self-evident knowledge, not subjective knowledge, but rational knowledge of the objective existence, that is the existence outside our mind, not just based on feelings or emotions, of the objective existence of the theistic Judeo-Christian God. Now on Friday, we went through some arguments to show that such a God can be determined to exist using causation. How many of you were here in either of the three services? Okay. You heard then, in that case, a shortened version in the little drama that was done prior to me coming up to speak. Everything that has a beginning has to have had a cause. If something had a beginning, it needs a cause. Science shows us that the universe had a beginning. So, whether you're Christian or not, if you're a scientist, if you're an astronomer or cosmologist, today, worldwide, everyone agrees that the universe didn't always exist. It had a beginning, so it has to have had a cause that's outside the universe, that doesn't, isn't made of the same things that the universe is made of. So, the cause of a human being cannot be another human being in an ultimate sense. So, I could say, well, the cause of my existence is my parents, and that would be correct. But then what could you ask after that? What is, what is the cause of my parents? And if you keep going backward, you're going to reach the first human beings. And you still haven't answered the question. So something else created the first human beings, and that something is not human. Because if it's human, we can continue to ask the question, where did that human come from? So there has to be a cause for the universe that's not made of the same thing that the universe is made of. So think about this. When we say universe, what do we mean? Space with objects inside it, matter, like planets, stars, whatever. And these objects are moving back and forth. They're moving in a straight line, or in a curve, or in circles, or ellipses. But matter is always moving. You heat water, it boils, it starts moving. The more energy something has, the more it's vibrating or moving. And to move, you need space. And to move, you have to be composed, the object has to be composed of matter. So you have matter in motion, in space. And when things move, that's how you tell the time. Think about an old grandfather clock. You have a pendulum 
that's matter in a space and then the pendulum moves back and forth and as it moves back and forth you can count off the seconds if you have a sundial you have a shadow created by the sundial the shadow moves and you can tell the time in an hourglass you have sand that's, that's moving and using the motion of the sand you can tell the time so matter time and space go together all the matter all the space all the time together is called the universe and scientists have determined that the universe didn't always exist so it needs a cause but that cause cannot be composed of the same things that the universe is made of because if it's made of the same thing that the universe is made of that's still just the universe it was just there before when you thought it was there so the cause has to be without space that means it has no size and it has no shape it has to be without matter which means it's completely immaterial the word in the Bible for that is spirit has it has no weight you can't weigh it but it's there and it has to be outside of time and if it's not made of matter and if it's not if it doesn't occupy space then it cannot move and if it cannot move you can't talk about before and after like you can with a pendulum in a grandfather clock so the cause has to be without space without time without matter the English words for those when you say without space it's called immense an immense something is immense when it has no possibility of being measured and, it, and it's also infinite if it's without matter it's called spirit if it's without time it's called eternal but I thought that's what we define God to be so then from causation alone you can show that the God we're talking about has to exist because if not we have no explanation for why there's a universe at all so notice in this argument we're not talking about the age of the earth is the, is the earth six days old is it millions of years old we don't have to get into any of that that those are all separate chapters we're only showing here that the universe has to have had a cause and that cause is exactly what we're talking about by the word God and this is a demonstration it's not a feeling it's not an emotion this is an inference a logical inference using the universe but we're not saying things like oh we can see God we're not saying things like that what we see is the universe so just like you see a burnt out building and you infer that there was a fire without being able to see the fire in the same way we infer that there has to be a first cause the rest of this presentation quickly I'm going to go through has to do with another kind of argument to show God is real and this is called the design argument so in the design argument it's really simple every design needs a designer the universe has been designed or you in this case life has been designed therefore there's a designer who's not part of the universe so if you see a painting what do you know was the cause of the painting if there's a painting there must have been a painter if you find a watch in the desert by looking at the fact that the watch is designed you can tell that the watch had a designer a watchmaker it couldn't have come by come about by itself so all we have to show is that the universe looks like it's been designed if it does then we are within moral uh, not moral but rational boundaries
to say that the universe must have had a designer. Now, when you look at a painting, you say there's a painter, you don't confuse the painter with the painting. The painter is not inside the painting. The painter is external to the painting. Simple, simple idea. It's so simple, in fact, we don't think about this, right? Um, if you have a car maker, the car maker isn't part of the car. So when you talk about the designer of the universe, if there is one, the designer is not part of the universe. So that means by God we do not mean something physical that occupies space or has body parts and moves around. We're not talking about a being like that. So then it looks like all we have to show is number two. Is number two really true? Number one, we know by experience every design needs a designer. We've never seen a design without a designer. Number two is what we have to show. And if we can show number two, then number three follows that there has to be a designer who's not part of the thing that has been designed. So there's two kinds of evidence for design in the universe. There are two phrases I'm going to introduce to you today. You don't necessarily have to remember them, but try to remember them for the sake of the presentation. Um, and then later, if you dive into it, you'll come across these phrases again. If not, it's not important. You can still understand the point being made here. So one is called specified complexity. And the second one is called irreducible complexity. So we're going to do specified complexity first. If you go outside and it's a clear day and you see that in the sky, would you think that's just a random cloud formation? No. There's something about it that looks like a message. Okay? That means it's been specified. And it's complex in the sense that it has many elements to it, not just one thing that's there. If there's just one object, maybe that object was always there. But there are many objects, and those objects could have been arranged any which way, but they, it so happens they are arranged to say CO2. It looks like, what does it look like? It looks like a message. It looks like it's been designed. It's not just the normal formation of clouds. So bottom line is that design can be detected. When we look at an arrangement of objects, we can tell if there's design in it. What about the smiley face? If you go outside and see a smiley face, it's the same idea. So these are just examples I use because I use this presentation a lot with middle schoolers. And the presentation works from, for any age to motivate the ideas. And then we can develop the ideas better as depending on who, who it is and the level of interest they have. What about Mount Rushmore? Could this have been a natural formation? Well, obviously not. So you can tell design by seeing it. That's all I'm trying to motivate here. And this is a statue of uh, Buddha that's carved into the rock in some ancient spot in the, in the, in the Middle East or in the, in the Far East. So obviously this sort of statue, if you were to find it, 
in the rock, you're not going to think that this came about by natural forces. And that's, Mount, that's a duplicate slide there. So all this to sort of prepare your mind for the central point I'm going to try and make. And that has to do with DNA. So what is DNA? DNA is a sequence of molecules that are coiled up and twisted in the shape that we can see there that appear to have instructions on how to build organisms. Or every plant, every animal, including and, and humans, have unique DNA. So a DNA is, the more we study, the more we find out that the DNA is like a computer program. Because it specifies how to construct an entire living organism. So here's a, a mind experiment for us. The English language has 26 letters in the alphabet. Think of the space shuttle, like the space shuttle endeavor. Think about how extremely complicated that space shuttle is to build. And think of writing out all the engineering manuals using English to describe how to build a space shuttle. So imagine you, as it is, that's a difficult task, but if you're able to describe exactly how every part of the space shuttle should be built, fitted together, and tested using English, I then come to you and I take, take out 10 letters out of the 26 letters of the alphabet. So you only have 16 letters left. And ask you to rewrite the instruction manual for the space shuttle again. Is that easier or harder? Harder. So you would have to invent a new set of words. You'll be working with a, a more limited set of words. And you'd have to be extremely smart to be able to describe how to build a space shuttle. Now I come back to you and take out another 10. So you only have six letters. And I ask you to describe how to build a space shuttle. So that would be incredibly difficult to do. By human standards, possibly impossible to do. But if you were to do it, I would come back to you and then say, I want two more letters taken out. And you're going to use just four letters and describe how to build and maintain a space shuttle. The four letters, in, in our case, are the four molecules that make up DNA. Imagine if we gave, if, if as humans we attempted to write an instruction manual on how to build an elephant or how to build a bird with, with wings which can fly, with just four letters in the alphabet. Could that have happened by itself? If, if human minds cannot produce it by thinking, what makes us think that it could have happened by itself? How much more extremely intelligent should a being be to be able to pull that off? So just with four letters, every single plant, every single animal has been described in the DNA. Because DNA has only four, four elements to work with, and it's just different, different sequences of them. You just think about A, B, C, D in different orders. That's all you have is A, B, C, and D, and with different, different ways you, of creating sequences, you have to specify how to build and maintain animals with wings, knowing how to take off and land, um, with sonar capabilities like the bats that use ultrasound, 
the dolphins that use ultrasound, the whales that talk to each other using high frequency ultrasound. You have to do all that with just four letters. So what we have here is, I think the print might be too small for me to see, but I'll look this way. So DNA contains instructions on what kind of plant or animal. On the gender, you also have to specify whether it's male or female. On how to generate the different organs, like the liver, the heart, the intestines, all of this. You have to explain all of this. To build limbs for flying animals, like uh, bats and birds. And these limbs have to be aerodynamic. We learned how to fly hardly 100 years ago. But the DNA has been specifying how to create wings for birds to fly for centuries, for thousands of years. For building swimming organs for depth control, we learned how to build submarines hardly 100 years ago that go through the water and are able to change the height or the depth within the water. But fishes do this all the time. They have a swim bladder inside them and they're able to do this all the time. So the DNA has to contain instructions on how to build that. And even for distinguishing individuals. So the DNA has to contain enough information to specify that how different one person is from another person. Right now, we have about six billion people on planet Earth. So each of our DNA, each of our, for each of us, the DNA is different from the other person. And yet, there's only four letters in it. We're being told that this happened randomly. So I think it's absurd. The more you study design, I mean, this is only an introductory lecture on the subject. The more you study design, the more you find out that this looks like somebody did this. Somebody really smart did it. And if this world is the painting, they are not part of this world. They're not part of this painting. They're outside it and they know what's going on. So this is the second argument for God's existence. The first one is from causation. There's a third one for which we have no time, which is a moral argument from the presence of good and evil itself. That we can determine that it has to be a lawgiver because everybody feels this difference between good and evil and we don't know where it comes from. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Pastor Steve and um, let him decide when we're going to start the uh, Q&A. He's just brilliant. And we thank the Lord. Why don't you take a five-minute break, take some stretch, go get a, a glass of water and uh, just a drink of water or whatever you'd like to do, and then come right back, and we'll start in five minutes. All right? Go ahead and do that. Take a stretch. So who wants to go first? You'll have to use the mic. Hello. Um, I just want to make sure I have this the apologetic approach correctly. Uh, you stated, or maybe I got it incorrect, that the rational knowledge excludes these senses. Is that correct? Well, we, when we say rational knowledge, we're talking about deducing something. But we do have to start with the senses because we have to start with what we can understand without reasoning. Like, for example, that there's a world and that the world has a beginning. So that comes to us through our senses. But then what we do with that is, is rational. Okay. So rational knowledge cannot be completely cut away from sense experience. 
Yeah, because I got friends that, you know, say, what about the people who never knew God, who lived in the third world country, never was yeah. exposed? And I always use Romans 1, 18 through 20, that talks about God yes. puts it inside everyone well, to know his qualities, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. If you read the scripture, the scripture doesn't say God puts it inside us. The scripture says that from the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and Godhead, are clearly seen. Right. So that means we have to start with the creation of the world, which is the universe. And then when we think about the universe, it becomes obvious to us that there's design and there's causation. And the cause of the universe has to be outside the universe. The designer of the universe has to be outside the universe. So it's not that God puts it inside us somehow, like, for example, how we know good and evil. That, in Romans 2, it says it has been put inside us. God has written his law in the hearts of all human beings. So that's inside us. That's self-evident. But Romans 1:18 through 20 is saying that we, that all people everywhere don't need a Bible to simply know that God exists because they can see the world or the universe and from it they can reason to their being a God. So that's not God putting it inside us, but he gives us the ability to reason to it and he gives us the evidence. So it's sense experience because we can see the world and it's rational because from what we see we can reason to their being a God. Even though, it doesn't, even though you cannot tell everything there is to know about God. For example, by looking at the universe, you're not going to know that God has a son named Jesus or that God is a trinity of persons. You can't know those things. Which is why we distinguished knowledge of existence from knowledge of what kind of being. Just like with, with the bushes, the example with the bushes. If there's a rustling of the leaves, you can know that something exists without knowing what exactly it is or everything there is to know about that thing. So all we're saying is we can start with the creation and we can know that there has to be a being that caused the world and is able to design the world. So, yeah. One, one other thing, sure. what are they suppressing then? Because the Bible says in 18, they're suppressing. Yes. So what are they suppressing they're if suppressing, it's not inside? They're suppressing the acknowledgement of what they already know to be true which is that you can't explain the universe without deducing God and his attributes. You, when you understand the universe well, when you look at it carefully, you have to deduce that there is a being outside the universe who's not in space, has no size or shape, and so on. And in Romans 2, we do have the innate knowledge of good and evil, so that means that outside being also has the knowledge of, also possesses morality or goodness, and then, what do we do with that? Well, that calls my actions into question. That means this being is watching me, may want something from me, may be telling me not to do things, and I don't like that. So then I just hide the evidence. I put, put it under the carpet and suppress it. Like a jack-in-the-box, it keeps popping up. The more I try to suppress it, the more it keeps popping up. But that doesn't stop me from still wanting to suppress it. So that's what that passage is saying. Yes. You'll have to come up to the mic. 
What type of uh, curriculum would you recommend where you could teach uh, elementary students or high school students science but in proper relationship with God? A, what's a curriculum that honors God and still teaches kids uh, science that we should have you know, as part of a, a general uh, responsible academic um, curriculum? Yes. And another part is, do you have any written resources that we can put in people's hands, you know? Right. Unfortunately, the curriculum to teach apologetics to young people, really yeah, young people, like elementary grades, is a huge need. So if you try to look for it and been frustrated, um, you feel that way rightly so, because we don't have apologetics for, for elementary school well-developed yet. About 20 years ago, a lot, a lot of the apologetics book, you need to have sort of finished college to be able to read. Then they produced books that you could read for high schoolers. And then now, so we're working our way downward in a way to keep the truths, but also simplify them so that younger and younger people can absorb the material. But as far as science textbooks, um, the science textbook is not going to deal with these sorts of philo philosophical issues like what we dealt with this morning. But there are good science textbooks out there. Apologia is one company that produces science textbooks where the science is very, very good. It, it's not an easy textbook to use, um, but it also upholds a biblical worldview. Another one is, uh, I forget the name of the textbook, I think it's simply called Biology Text, which is really odd. Uh, the name of the, the book is Biology Text, but it's by BJU Press, Bob Jones University Press. That is a high school biology textbook. And we have, I have that textbook at home, so I know it's, it actually comes in two volumes. So it's very detailed biology. However, it does maintain a Christian perspective but it, it describes the theory of evolution as well, but it doesn't endorse it. It gives you the Christian view side by side. Yeah. So, but that is a big need in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in Christian education today, is to have the kind of thing we're talking about in written form for elementary school. It doesn't exist right now. Yeah. Yes. Praise the Lord. God bless. I have two questions. The first question is uh, from me. The second one is from my son who's not here this evening. Uh, my question comes from Psalms 19 verse 1, which reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. As far as um, sharing with someone who doesn't believe in God and thinks that man came about through that one cell, how can you expound upon that to give me more understanding, more depth, to use scriptures like these yes. to share with those types of individuals that creation itself right. shows that God exists? Right. So we didn't uh, go through the presentation that dealt with the first argument, which I used on Friday evening. But in that, what we are showing is that the argument from causation requires some knowledge of astronomy which is basically the study of the heavens right so Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork and then it goes on to talk about how every part of the world has seen the heavens 
So if you look into the heavens, what do you see? You see design. Okay, so you see the stars in motion, but you also have stars in sort of a regular pattern. So that way you can actually know by looking at the stars when it is time to plant the crops and when it is time to harvest the crops. You can actually do all those sorts of inferences by looking at the heavens. So the heavens are used for navigation. So the heavens are not just random. They follow regular patterns. And so it, it, it suggests that something or someone has designed them. And like we mentioned, causation. If something had a beginning, then it needs a cause. Well, to establish that the universe had a beginning, we look to astronomy, which is the study of the heavens. So the astronomers have done all the legwork for us. And they're telling us that the heavens are telling them that the universe did not always exist. So arguments like this, like the design argument, don't, don't touch directly on astronomy. But the, the argument from causation, that argument, which I didn't go through, I went through very briefly today, it assumes that we are get, getting the conclusions of the astronomers who have spent their lives studying the heavens. And their conclusion is the universe could not have existed always. It had a beginning. And from there, we say a simple, make a simple inference, which is that if something had a beginning, then it needs a cause. So that would be one way to do it. The other way would be sort of less, it's more subjective, and that would be purely from beauty. Because everybody is touched by the beauty of the sunset or the stars or the constellations. Uh, so you have beauty, you also have the regularity of motion. Because many cultures have, in the past, used the, the star constellations, as it were, to be able to predict when uh, the, the seasons change. And so they're able to plant crops and things like that, based on that. So that kind of regular appearance, where it's not chaotic and all over the place, it does the same thing every year, suggests that it's been designed. Yeah. And uh, second question is, um my son and sharing Christ with teenagers, obviously. Uh, they said, well, there are different life forms on the earth. That's a given. And the question that comes towards him a lot is, well, there must be life form of a life form in space, UFOs, extraterrestrial. And um, what can you share with me to go back to him to help him in that area as far as sharing Christ? Sure. Yeah, the important thing is, you know, to recognize what people call a red herring. So a red herring is, you know, herrings are usually not red colored. They're all sort of silvery or whitish or whatever. But in the middle of all these regular colored herring, if you see one that's red, it just sort of catches your eye and it distracts you. So a red herring in logic is when somebody brings a piece of evidence or some statement or some fact, which may be true, but has no bearing on what it is we are trying to demonstrate or argue. So extraterrestrial life, what, does, it, does it have anything to do with whether God exists? See, that's the question. But if you make it look like, is there extraterrestrial life? And start chasing that question, 
That's not the same question as, does God exist? If extraterrestrial life does exist, something or someone would have had to design it. Do I know that extraterrestrial life exists? No. Can I be dogmatic and say, I know it doesn't exist? No. But from the Bible, it looks like when God created, finished creating, all his cre creative activity seems to have to do with the sun, moon, and stars, and the earth. It doesn't talk about living things anywhere that are not on the earth. So I'm inclined to think there are no extraterrestrial living things. But if someone says, well, I think there are, that's fine. That's not a problem. But the, but the main question here is, if there is extraterrestrial life, it, it exhibits design. If it's smart especially, where did it get its smartness from? Right? If it's designed, if it has five eyes, okay, we have a real problem. Where did five eyes come from? A bee has 200 eyes. So, you know, what we consider to be alien and strange, you'll be surprised if you study life forms on Earth, you'll find things which appear to be very alien and strange. They are actually part of the Earth. Um, so, if there's extraterrestrial life, we still haven't shown that God doesn't exist. Because something or someone has to account for how those aliens came to be. So you still need to posit a creator for the aliens. Y yes. I have uh, a friend. He's called himself an atheist. Could you bend the microphone closer? Okay. Yeah. Um, he called himself an atheist. Yes. And uh, I tried one time to talk to him about God. He said, no, I don't believe in that. But come to Christmas. They have a Christmas tree in their home. Yes. So how I... How do you reconcile that, you mean? Yeah, I mean, perhaps it's, it's an issue of habit or culture. It could be that the person was raised in a home where they celebrated Christmas. But don't forget that these celebrations sometimes are a matter of community and a matter of tradition. And it's possible to have sort of a, a warm, emotional experience. Mm -hmm. um, all cultures celebrate different aspects of the year. Harvest festivals, spring festivals, uh, people who don't, know the Christ, who don't know the message of the gospel still believe in some kind of thing that's transcendent and it's within all humans to want to, they, to, to long for something that's beyond us. Even atheists uh, have their moments where they long for there being something beyond themselves. So I wouldn't know why this, your, your, the person you know it has a Christmas tree. It could be simply that it's a time of reflection and you don't have to be a Christian to have that time of reflection and thinking back on the year. And uh, people often find someone else to be grateful to. They talk about, oh, we are grateful. You'll hear secular people talking about how grateful they are. I've often asked myself, now, who exactly are we thanking? <laughs> and sometimes they find other people to thank and say, well, well, we're grateful for the country we live in or the community we live in and those sorts of things. But it's not like a question that some, then his belief is something there. 
Well, that's that's a, not believing, right? Don't right, that's nothing. an individual issue. So I wouldn't know without knowing more about the right. person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. You can come up to the microphone. And yeah. Sorry, I kind of yeah. just came over here. No, that's fine. Um, okay. Um, uh, I don't know if you're aware. There are two um, prominent self-professed Christian apologists. One of them is Timothy Keller. He wrote The Reason for God. One of them is Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project. Both of them, uh, I, I really respected them, still respect them. Um, they both back a foundation called the BioLogos Foundation, which um, supports uh, evolution, like the idea that God used evolution to create the world. That's not a position that I hold, and I have perused their website. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about that. I sure. don't. I feel like the position is not theologically tenable, and wanted to hear your Absolutely. opinion. Absolutely, I would agree with you. I'm aware of uh, Francis Collins, who's the director of the Genome Project. I have no doubt that Francis Collins is Christian. Yeah. I don't have a reason to doubt his being a genuine believer. But like you could be a genuine believer and be wrong about mathematics or be wrong about, you know, where is Kansas on the map, you know. It is possible to, for you to be wrong about something like the, uh, your view on origins. Uh, just because someone is a Christian and they happen to believe in evolution doesn't make them not to be a Christian. So we have to be careful. Belief in crea creation is part of orthodoxy, but as long as the person is not denying God's existence, it's not, their orthodoxy cannot be called into question. It could be simply they're, they're, they're not willing to accept a different position, or they may have their own reasons and we can always engage them and discuss the, this issue with them. But the idea here is Francis Collins believes that God used evolution. So let that sink in. Take a moment and let that sink in for a while. Okay. And the Bios, but the BioLogos Foundation is a foundation dedicated to promoting this very idea, which is that evolution, they say, is the mechanism that God used and that somehow it's compatible. So actually, this morning we saw some of the problems with evolution as evolution is traditionally taught. So evolution as it's taught in a regular biology textbook today is the house which is on the foundation of naturalism. So the moment you start talking about evolution that God is using, are you even talking about the same thing? That's a, one question I would have for if I had a chance to chat with uh, Professor Collins. I would say, wait a minute, you know, all across universities, when they're talking about evolution, the assumption is naturalism, which means there is no God. Which, which the, the statement of naturalism is that there are only natural forces, no supernatural forces. And on that philosophical foundation, they then talk about evolution. So if you talk talking about evolution with God in the picture, using evolution, arguably, you're not talking about the same thing. Because no one, no secular atheistic scientist is going to accept the view held by Francis Collins as being credible. Now, the other issue is that why think evolution will suddenly work if you put God into the explanation? Either evolution works or evolution doesn't work. You can put God into the equation and make it work. For example, think about 
A square circle, if you can. <clears throat> that is a contradiction. Now, do you think God can make a, a, a square circle? How would you know if he could? Why do you think he could, if you do think he could? Well, does anything involve things like square circles? So, when we say God can do any, anything, we're not talking about contradictions. We're talking only about the realm of what is possible. Because otherwise, even if God could create a square circle, could you recognize it? Could you say, aha, see, he made one. If you can, please draw me one to show me what it is that you're looking for. So the point here is that, is that you can't inject God into an explanation that doesn't work and then make it work because now you press the God button. And this is the sort of charge that non-Christians or non-theists, uh, non atheists, often bring against Christians, which is that when we don't understand something, we just say, God did it. And they think that's, that's not good because we are preventing ourselves from pursuing the knowledge of that thing as to why it happens. And we're, we're not doing the research and doing the homework to find out why it happens. We just stop and say, well, maybe God did it. That's it. That's the explanation. So we should not be guilty of doing that. So evolution itself, the way I understand it, doesn't work. Now, I don't mean that DNA is not flexible, because DNA allows for variation. So if you're talking about changes on a small scale, like you can take a grapefruit, and by breeding grapefruits, you can actually get an orange back. And you can create limes and lemons from oranges. You can make seedless grapes from grapes that have seeds. You can take dog breeds which are that big and make a dog breed that's only this big. Because the DNA can vary and by selective breeding you can use the fact that DNA does change here and there. So that kind of evolution, if you're talking about that kind of evolution, yeah, I, I, I see that happening. We do it all the time with different breeds of dogs and and uh, breeding of different uh, plants and fruit and things like that. But evolution on the scale that, that is required to cause all, he, all living things to descend from one common ancestor, I don't think it works. It, to me, it's like square circle. Now, just by saying, but God did it, doesn't, it isn't, firstly, it's not a proof because it's like I would ask you, well, when God creates a square, square circle, if you can tell that he did, you can tell me now what it looks like, what, it's, what it is you're looking for. Why don't you draw it for me now? Sh and show me that you know what a square circle looks like. So when God makes one, then you can say, see, he did it. So evolution, by definition, is random change. So if you look into a, a textbook on evolution, evolution is defined as a process that's mediate by, mediated by randomness natural forces acting randomly with no guidance. If that's what evolution is, and then you're also going to say that God is somehow guiding it, or you just change the word. Instead of saying God designed or created, now you say God guides it. No secular scientist is going to accept that. So, yeah, I, um, I don't think uh, theistic evolution is coherent and I, 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 by itself, and also theologically, I don't think it's orthodox. Because how do you account for sin? 
if evolution happened, even if God used evolution, animals routinely kill each other, animals steal from each other, but they're not morally responsible. So if I'm an animal, why is it suddenly wrong for me to kill and steal? If, if I came by evolution, then I'm feeling the same urge that animals are feeling, why do you say it's wrong then? So how did morality come to be if evolution is true? And just because you say God used it doesn't show me how I get my sense of right and wrong. Because if I act like an animal, that's supposed to be sinful. In fact, that's how we describe depraved behavior among humans. We just say they're like a bunch of animals. But if we are animals, then why we, how do you support morality? Well, they're a bunch of animals because then they are animals. We are, all of us are animals. So why, why condemn people for certain actions? So morality doesn't come through. What about the existence of an immortal soul? What they call it, soul or spirit? And I know there's some, some views which hold soul and spirit are distinct, and some views where soul and spirit are, are the same. But at the end of the day, there's something about humans, according to the Bible, that survives death. You, can, you will still be, be alive. You're not completely perished when you die. Your body dies but your spirit will continue to exist either with God or outside his presence. Well, how did that spirit evolve? Where did that come from? Just because you say God used evolution doesn't answer the question of the spiritual nature of humans. So I don't think evolution connects with, uh, or explains all the things that the Bible claims to be true of, of human beings. Morality is one of them. The existence of the soul is another. Um, the institution of marriage is another because for evolution to work the for uh, an organism to succeed it has to reproduce more the organism that has the most offspring is the one that wins in the ba in the battle in the competition for food and water so if you have uh, you know a white wolf and you have a black wolf if the black wolf has more kids more babies than the white wolf then they're going to take over the, the area and the white wolves will not have enough individuals to compete and be able to survive so the white wolves will, will die out. That's how evolution works. So what is this thing about monogamous heterosexual marriage? Why suddenly is God telling me I should be involved physically intimately with only one person? For If I got here by evolution then that means I got here because my forefathers had more offspring with multiple partners. So why is it wrong now to have multiple partners? So I don't think evolution fits with the biblical worldview. So just saying God is involved in it doesn't make it acceptable for atheists. They're going to say, no, he's not, because there isn't one, and you're back to square one. So yeah, that's my view on theistic evolution. Yes? Yes. Well, I have two questions, Prem, but uh, first of all, I want to thank you for your clarity, insight, and wisdom in this field of study. Um, first question is, assuming that scientists consider themselves to be intelligent, created beings with the ability to reason intelligently, how in the world could scientists ever concede that such intelligent life and design could ever come from anything other than a supreme intelligent designer? Yeah, this is a good critique. So, this is really the critique of the bottom of the foundation that I, I was talking about this morning for those of you who were, who were present in the morning. I showed evolution as a sort of a red block and underneath was a green block that said naturalism. So naturalism states that there are only natural forces. 
that act randomly. There's no supernatural forces. And if that's true, then everything that exists by way of living things came about randomly. That means our brains and the way they work are working randomly. Why suddenly think that if, if our brains were produced by a random process that we are now suddenly rational and intelligent? In other words, how can something rational and intelligent emerge from a process that has no intelligence in it? So you're actually, what you're saying is you're critiquing naturalism and evolution. So this is exactly how we need to respond to the atheists. This is a question for the atheists, not for us. This is a question for them. Saying, okay, let's, let's go over this again. There are no supernatural forces, there are no intelligent beings outside the physical universe. Okay, that's naturalism. All right. How did we get here? Through evolution. How does evolution happen? Randomly, through, the, through copying mistakes in the DNA. Okay? So that means whatever you get through randomness is also random. There's no rhyme or reason to it as to why it looks the way it does. It just simply does because of, it's like rolling the die. If you have, you know, a million, um, I don't know how many words or how many letters there are in Shakespeare's Hamlet, right? But if you had one dice, one die for every letter, and you just sort of shook them all up and threw them, and you see Hamlet written out, firstly, that would be extremely strange to find Hamlet coming out. Uh, the die would have to have 26 faces for it to begin with in, in the way I'm describing it. Okay, but so even if Hamlet comes out, how do you know that's really Hamlet? Because it, it, the process that produced it isn't personal, it isn't intelligent. So even if it looks like it's Hamlet, there's no one behind it giving you Hamlet, giving you the story. When I read Hamlet, it says by William Shakespeare, and I know it's a message, it's a play from this person. This person wrote this play. It's very obvious to me. But even if I were to see Hamlet just randomly appearing, that's not, it's not clear to me that that's anything intelligent. That's just, it might as well have been gibberish, a string of A's and Z's perhaps. So, whatever is produced by a random process is also random in nature. That means our brains are random. Then why suddenly trust our brains and say we're intelligent and we know how everything came about? Maybe it's an illusion. Maybe you're thinking that way because your brain is working randomly. Because you, you're saying that you got here through some random process. How then do you claim that you're actually rational and smart and are able to avoid mistakes and things like that? So, very good critique. You, sa you said it very well. Thank you. Yes. I thought about it. My second question is, are there any prominent, well-respected scientists who are willing to lead the way and stand up for the concept that there could be no other explanation for creation but to, to, be, uh, to be possible other than the supreme intelligence design or even more boldly by God? Yes. So this is interesting because science by itself, by definition, studies only the physical world. So science is really unable to opine on the question of whether there is a God as defined traditionally. And traditionally in the Western world, when I say traditionally, I mean the Christian definition. Because in the Western world, 
when we say God, generally speaking, we're talking about the Christian definition. So, science, as far as a scientist is, is practicing science, they don't have the tools necessary to posit God as such. They can, they can show, though, that there has to be some sort of designer. So that's hence the movement known as intelligent design. If you study that movement and read some of the material put out by them, you'll note that they stop short of saying that the designer is God. In one sense, you cannot blame them for that because insofar as they're doing science, it is not their business to be able to specify, nor do they have the tools to specify that it must be the God of the Bible who made, who made uh, all these things. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like asking somebody who's an expert car mechanic to give an opinion about cancer. It's not something that their discipline allows them to do. As a person, they may be knowledgeable about cancer, but as far as they're doing fixing cars, everything that they learned on how to fix cars doesn't help them to make solid, certain statements about something like cancer. So speaking about God without the scripture follow, falls under the category of philosophy. There are philosophers who can defend the existence of God and things like that without the Bible. The scientists can point to a designer. So prominent scientists, I, how prominent is prominent? Because I don't know, uh, we, leading the way in their fields, you know, people well, that he, uh, other scientists look up to for, well, here's for their the thing. knowledge. The, the problem here is because of the current anti-Christian climate and mm -hmm. anti-theistic climate, uh, any scientist who comes out boldly like that is often marginalized and persecuted and they lose their standing many times. But I would mention a few who are still actively employed by secular universities. Michael Behe, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Denton is an Australian biologist, Michael Behe is a biochemist. Uh, you have Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. uh, you have um, some scientists who work for the Institute for Creation Research. And then you have a very interesting person from Brooklyn. His name is uh, David Berlinski. David Berlinski is a Princeton-educated mathematician. He's a Jewish agnostic. However, he, and he's a brilliant, brilliant man, and author of several uh, works in mathematics, but he's also uh, written on the subject of atheism pretending to be scientific. He's written a small book, which I would recommend to everybody because the man is, first of all, so funny and very easy to read and the book is a really short book it's a small it's no thicker than that and it's called the devil's delusion and the subtitle is the scientific pretensions <coughs> of atheism even though he isn't sure that god exists he has done us a huge favor by going after the atheists who claim that their atheism is justified by science and he shows that that's not true and they call him where he works, um, I think the head of the department where he used to work at least called him the incorrigible Dr. Berlinski because they've tried their best to try and defeat him but no one can defeat this man. Nobody. He will just completely put you to shame. Uh, and he's not, not a believer in Jesus. He doesn't, he's not even sure God exists. But he thinks this idea that atheism has a scientific ground under it, he thinks that's just bogus. 
and he will just completely take apart the atheists. Now he's not a scientist in the, in the sense of being involved in like physics, chemistry, biology, that, that kind of scientist. He's a mathematician, but he's, a, he's unignorable. Yeah. We'll pray for him. <laughs> Certainly. Yes. yes. Oh, will you? Next. Yes, thanks. Yes. Um, I've always had an interest in physics, so when you started to talk about the DNA specified complex, I recall um, initially being afraid to take a secular physics class um, regarding that it would cause havoc with my faith. But as I studied it more and more, uh, it just supported the position you know, in every way, shape, and form, and it made me feel like, what are they thinking, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, everything's got design. Everything's about mathematics. Yes. yes. Everything comes together under uh, principles and laws, and in any case, regarding the DNA-specified complex, you said it was like, you know, the 26 letters and taking them out and only leaving four letters. I may not be understanding uh, the DNA aspect of it in the sense that I don't understand how four elements can create um, DNA for a human. I, I don't know how long the string is, but aren't there only just so many different variations of four letters that you could have? Well, it depends on the length of, of the string. So, for example, with firstly, with DNA, just to make sure we understand, okay. uh, when we say elements, we're not talking about chemical elements. Okay. We're talking about something called a nucleotide. So a single nucleotide is a very complicated chemical molecule. It has okay. many elements and many atoms. Okay. But there are only four such nucleotides okay. that are used in some combination. So as far as how many combinations you can have, it depends on the length of the molecule. So it's like writing strings of, um, I'm a programmer, so when I say string, I'm not talking about string like stitching strings, yeah. you know, cloth string. I'm Computer talking about like a sequence of letters. Language. Yeah. So if you have only one letter, what are the different combinations? How many combinations are there? 26. One. You just oh. pick one letter, how many different varieties can you have of that? You can pick A, if yeah. not, you can pick B, Right. So that's two. If not, you can pick C. And totally, there's 26 possible choices for you. Mm -hmm. If you have two letters, how many combinations are there? Each one, for each one that you pick in the first, you can pick 26 varieties in the second. But the first one also can have 26 varieties. So the total is 26 times 26. Okay. But supposing you have 100 letters, 100 spots, each one can, be, can have 26 varieties. So it's 26 times itself, 100 times over, which is an extremely large number. And for DNA, it goes out into the thousands, and I don't know if it reaches the millions, but it's definitely the thousands. Okay. So if you're talking about thousands of um, sp spots, and you're going to put either of the four nucleotides in each spot, right. it's an enormous number of combinations. Because the nucleotides within themselves no, the nucleotides changed? do not vary within themselves. Oh, okay. There are just four nucleotides. Mm -hmm. And each nucleotide works, looks the, you know, just one way. There are no varieties within. But even though there are four nucleotides, 
the DNA molecule is sort of like a twisted helix. Yes. So each line that goes across is one nucleotide. Each bar is one nucleotide. I got you. But this sequence extends and keeps going for thousands and thousands and thousands of bars. So the sequence of those thousands of bars, the different varieties, there's just millions and millions of varieties. I got you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, my, my question is, uh, since we have known the God that of the whole universe is God really one and alone, as Muslim, totally believe, now how, how would they believe in that? Believe, in, I'm sorry, in how, I'm, I'm not you sure know, I understand. Believe God is the whole, you know, whole universe in, in, in uh, 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 create the whole universe. Yes, Muslims do believe that. So, particularly, what, what is your... My question is, you know, how do they, they, they believe? They go by trusted authority. Now, Muslims will probably accept these arguments as well. More than likely, they will. So these arguments are not sufficient to, to establish Christianity. These arguments only establish the kind of God that the Bible talks about, not the whole Christian faith. So to establish the whole Christian faith, you have to do other things. I have a seminar called The 12 Points to Show That Christianity is True. The seminar was developed by my professor. So it, properly, the material is his, Dr. Norman Geisler. But he um, has taught us the 12 steps. So the first step is you can know the truth about reality. The second has to do with the opposite of true is false. The third is that the theistic God exists, which is what I'm sharing with you, step three. The fourth is if there's a God, there, then, God then there can be miracles. Because God is not part of the universe, so he can override the laws. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick, those sorts of things. And then the fifth point is if miracles are possible, then miracles can be used to authenticate a message from God. So Moses goes back to Israel after, being, after witnessing the burning bush, and he says, the God of our fathers appeared to me, and he wants to deliver us from the land of Israel according to his promise. And what are they going to say to him? Which God are you talking about? How do we know God has sent you? And what does Moses do? He does a miracle, puts his, puts his hand in his bosom, pulls it out, it's leprous, puts, it, puts his hand back in and is instantly healed. He takes his staff and throws it down and becomes a snake, picks up the snake and becomes a staff again. Now the people believe him. So if you can do a miracle, then maybe we can believe that God has given you a message. But if you can't do a miracle, then there's no compelling reason for us to believe what you say. So the reason why I'm a Christian, rationally speaking, not in terms of my experience, because both are, both are there, right? The reason why I'm a Christian, rationally speaking, is because I see that Jesus performed miracles. He predicted his death, and he fulfilled his, prof, the, his own prediction. So I want to listen to him. And he, what he's saying must be true if he can walk on water find fish that professional fishermen cannot find, 
raised Lazarus after waiting for him to die and being in the tomb for four days. He can do all these things. And most of all, the biggest miracle of all, he can rise from the grave and be seen by over 500 people at the same time. Okay, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Jesus, was, it says there very clearly, Jesus was seen by 500 people at the same time. So it could not be a dream or a hallucination or anything like that, because people don't share dreams and hallucinations. I can't have your hallucination or your dream. So if both of us witness something, it's possible we were both deceived, but it's not a dream or a hallucination because that's only possible for one person at a time. So there are reasons why Jesus is believable. And because Jesus is believable, I believe what he says. And so that's how I established in my mind Christianity is true. Muhammad did nev never, never did a miracle. In fact, he was asked about it. And Muhammad's answer was, the Quran is, is the only miracle you need. On the other hand, Jesus, the Bible says, if we were to record all the things that Jesus did, there would be not enough books in the world to record it. So what the Bible gives is a small selection of what Jesus did. Not everything Jesus did. So compare that with Muhammad having done no miracle at all except the production of the Quran. So that's why I would go with Christianity and not with Islam. But as far as these arguments, I think it, Muslims would accept these arguments and they would use these to justify existence of God. Yes. Uh, we're going to conclude, but I did want to ask you if you could give some, I know that you gave a, a few things out on Friday, uh, but some material for further uh, learning and further discovering. Uh, would you give them some material that they might want to look at? Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> you can start with a book called, um, it's simply titled On Guard. And the author is William Lane Craig. The last name is C-R-A-I-G. It's a general book. It's not only on science. It's a book generally on apologetics. So it's, going to, it's going to touch on science. It's going to touch on um, archaeology, on historical evidence, on the evidence for the New Testament. It's a variety of subjects. Then there's another book which is written by Frank Turek and Norman Geisler. Now, Dr. Geisler was my professor, so that book is sort of what we used to learn when we were under, studying under Dr. Geisler. And it's called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And where he shows that being an atheist requires faith and more faith than is needed in the light of all the evidence that God has given us. It makes more sense requires less faith to become a Christian than to remain an atheist. And so that book is also like On Guard. It's a little thicker and Dr. Geisler does not spare people. As far as reading goes, you're going to bring, bring, keep your dictionary with you and you'll think of it like a year-long year project. You're going to read a little at a time, but um, he's one of the finest apologists we have known. and. Uh, his book is wonderful. And Frank Turek, who's actually from New Jersey, um, studied under him and they co-wrote the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That would be also a very good book. For people who are more into science, there is a book called uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Intelligent Design. 
by Jonathan Wells. Jonathan Wells has two PhDs, he's very bright, and he shows you the holes in evolution and how the media uses evolution and how there are lies in the textbooks, in, in biology textbooks and things like that. But that you have to be interested in biology and evolution to want to read a book like that. And there are other books, but they're more specialized. Like if you're already into like chemistry or biology, you know, Michael Behe, I mentioned Michael Behe as a, as a scientist who doesn't believe in evolution. Well, he's written a book called Darwin's Black Box. But if you haven't taken college-level chemistry, it's not worth reading the, trying to read the book. Um, so there are other, other books, but they are you know, sort of at a higher level. And um, there's another one, called, another one by, you'd have to find the, the, the titles. I know the author because he was the president of our seminary. I don't know all the titles of the books he wrote, but he writes for teenagers, actually. He writes for the teenage level. He assumes that you're not going off to college necessarily or ever will, but you still want a grounding for your faith. So he's written, his name is Alex McFarland. So if you look up Alex McFarland and you'll find books for teenagers. And there's another one called Living Out Loud. Living Out Loud. It's a small, it's a thin book. It's also aimed at teenagers. So those are sort of great to get you introduced and like any like anything I think you have to sort of read the book once read the book twice perhaps keep it on your shelf and use it as a reference and you really have to like learn by doing go and try it out because I can guarantee you in a week's time you may feel like some of this material sort of just went, went like water through your fingers that would be normal if you didn't feel that way I'd be concerned because when I took class, I would be like, this is great. And in three days, I'm like, what happened there? What did he say? Um, it, it's, you have to practice, you know, just like anything else. You, you repeat it, you do it often enough, and then you begin to become comfortable with the material. You learn the new phrases that you need to use and practice with uh, non-believers. Allow them to defeat you 10 times, 15 times. There's nothing like failure to get you on the pathway to success. It's okay if you, if you don't do a good job at first, because no one does. And God just called us to go and speak for him anyway. So don't worry about, well, what if I fail? Well, so, and so, so what? You know, we preach the gospel and people don't get saved, so don't let that stop you. Just keep at it and uh, it, it all starts coming together. And you also find that not everybody wants an answer. People will shut you out. You give them the arguments and they'll just shut shut the door in your face because they really don't want to hear. We don't have to worry about those folks, but the scripture says um, in, in Peter, scripture says, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks. So there's a subset of people who will ask you. It's for those people that we prepare. And, you know, God knows who, who those people are. So, thank you. Thank you so much. Amen. We're going to take a moment to pray for Prem. He's going to be leaving tomorrow uh, to go to Norway, and we want to pray a blessing over him as the Lord would take him safely and the Lord would use him in a great way. Let's, let's always remember, uh, it's, uh, apologetics, are, it's a powerful tool, but it's the Holy Spirit that draws men. And we can, we can convince them in their minds, but it's only the Holy Spirit that can transform a heart and a life. 
And I know that Prem, who is a Pentecostal, fervent man of prayer, he knows that this is a tool that we use to be able to minister to people. But intercession and prayer and intercession is the most powerful tool that we can use. So, uh, you, you know, this is not, you know, this is not the puff up the mind you know, to say, oh, I know certain things. I have good answers now. I'm going to go back to, to, to my, to my uh, workplace now and I'm going to really give it to them. It's not about making us argumentative. It's not about making us proud and boastful. You will fall flat on your face if you think that you have a couple of tidbits and tips of information and now you're going to go back to work now and you're going to get people saved and you're going to tell that person that doesn't, you know, you must go in humility, you must go in love, and you must bathe it in prayer and be a student of the Word because it's the Word that doesn't return void. Amen? You know, I told, I told uh, Prem that what he basically does is teaches us the Word. Uh, nothing that you've heard tonight nor anything that you heard this morning or uh, on Friday was outside the realm of the Word of God. Amen? So let's just stand and let's extend our hand towards our brother Prem and, and pray a blessing over him. Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, that God, you have used him in a mighty way, Lord, to help us to understand certain things, Father. You've helped us to have tools in our heart and in our minds, oh God, to be able to share the word. God, I pray that you would just continue to use him in a mighty way. We can see your hand of blessing upon his life, God. Lord, take him to places, Lord God, that some of us could never go, Lord God. And Lord, use him, fill him, Lord, with the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. God, may the word of God richly dwell in his life, Father. And everything that he doesn't say, Lord, may it bring glory and honor to your name, Father. And Lord, we thank you, O oh God, that you will bless him, Lord God, as you have blessed us through his life today in Jesus name we pray amen amen uh, one last thing I was asked if this is being taped uh, what you can do is we're going that we, we have uh, actually uh, live stream this this evening and during the week this week we'll put it online so that you can then go to our website Bethlehem Assembly uh, dot org and you can get any sermon in the past you can see it you can view it and uh, we are working on podcasts you can go to our podcast and get it on podcast we don't have all of the sermons yet loaded on podcast but you will have this on live stream by the end of this week god bless you have a great night and um, make sure you glorify jesus in all that you do